Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Multispeed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour with me, my co-host, Steve Owens. Welcome in, sir. Greetings from a very windy South Dakota. You know, we're sitting here in the studio and hanging out, having a good time, having conversation. I looked out, I'm like, hey, we have to go to a radio show. I got distracted. I goldfished it. I'm sorry. Yep. You know what happens. It does. Hey, we'll go straight to the phones. You can join the program, make your voice heard, become a part of the program. 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email Live at AskNoahShow.com. James joins us from Idaho. Hey, James, welcome to the program. James? Okay. I will see if I can uh, get James back here. Uh, Click on a button. Let's try this. James, do I have you? James? Now James hung up. Okay. Well, we'll try and get James back. Um, in the meantime, Steve, how's your week? You know what? The sun is now shining. Uh, we've watched the snow melt away yet again, so it's uh, going pretty good. Fantastic. Um, again, you can join the program, 855 450 It's 855-450-6624. The email, live at com. Our first email comes in from John. John writes in and says, while listening to this question, my mind immediately went to part 15 transmitter. So this is in response to, uh, I believe it was last week, we were talking about assisted hearing devices uh, inside of public venues like churches. The likelihood that Josh's father is not the only person struggling with hearing loss is substantial. Even in a small church, having something that everyone in the congregation could use would be a path to look into. While part 15 FM is a legal minefield, I would not suggest any search weighed into it. The AM side is much friendlier. With even budget-friendly options such as the InfoSpot, and he links to an AM t- uh, an AM radio transmitter that you can buy off of Amazon. Now, the advantage to doing this, I, I hadn't really thought about this, but essentially what you're doing is you're making a little mini radio station. And the advantage of going this route, Part 15, as opposed to um, trying to have a specific device in a, in a in a in a specific hearing assisted device that company has presumably gone to the FCC and said hey we want to manufacture this device we want it to run on this frequency and so we want a license to say that these devices are always going to work on on these frequencies and so nobody else can use this and the FCC says okay and now that's that's allowed but you have to buy that specific brand that specific transmitter, that specific receiver for all of this to work. Okay, so let's talk about Part 15. Part 15 um, is actually a very wide section of of FCC policy, but uh, it allows you to operate a radio station, a small radio station, if you're running it under a certain amount of 
power and a certain amount of radiation. So, you know, you could run a certain amount of power on a very tall tower and it would reach a very long way. So they limit both of those things. And so essentially you can buy a little device that, and you've probably seen them. If you've ever had one of those devices that you plug into your car and you plug it into like your iPod or your phone and then it plays the audio over your little FM radio in your car. That is what we're talking about here. So he's saying the FM side is a little challenging to wade through, but the, the AM side is a little bit more friendly. And so for 168 bucks, you can get the InfoSpot AM radio transmitter. And this is something that you would essentially just install inside of your church. Now, the advantage to Josh and his father would be the following. They could go to their local Best Buy or their local Radio Shack or whatever place sells radios nowadays, and you could purchase a little pocket FMAM radio. Then you can plug your earbuds into it, and anybody can tune to the church's frequency, whatever they set it to, and... You can listen to the church service. Better yet, if you're out inside the parking lot or maybe you're still hung up on the whole social distancing thing, you can listen to it from around the building. You don't even have to be in the same room uh, and you could potentially keep an ear on it. So for 168 bucks, that's a really great way to go. So we'll definitely include a uh, we'll definitely include that in the show notes and you can uh, you can check that out. I think James is with us again. Again, 855-450. No, it's 855-450-6624. The email live at com. James, you're on the air. Good afternoon. Yeah, I was thinking of looking back at Fedora, but I would like to use, don't like to use Gnome Show. And the rumors are that you can't remove Gnome Show. Is that, you know, if there's a way to get Gnome Show out, because I like to just drop Xorg and Openbox in. Um, I know I love where Gnome Show. So, I, okay. So let's start here. Um, what, where were you getting the information that you can't remove Gnome Show? Uh, the, the, the general, uh, Groups on the internet were saying Fedora locked it down, and I didn't know if that was true or not. Mm. No, pretty sure sudo dnf remove gnome dash desktop is going to get rid of gnome. I mean, I, I to be fair, I guess I haven't tried it. Steve, you're a gnome guy. Have you ever tried to remove gnome? Probably not, because you're a gnome guy. No, um, and Fedora already like Fedora has spins, right? They've mm. got KDE, XFCE, LXQT, Mate, Cinnamon. Um, Do they have Openbox? Uh, I3, I don't know if they have open box, but I guess my point is, is like, if I was going to try and do something like that, I'd probably do like LXDE or LXQT and, um, just kind of graph the open box on. Cause both of those are super light without having like massive amounts of dependencies. Like, so if, if you, if you did GNOME, then you're going to pull in all of GNOME stack with it, which is not necessarily what you, what you would like. So if you're going to replace something anyways, I t- would tend to go with something. I might even try i3 and then just change out i3 for Openbox. Could, is there such a thing as like a minimal installation of Fedora and then you can just manually add the desktop environment you want? Mm, well, there's Fedora server and it would have the same package repos, so you could ah. probably build it up that way. I would. T- I'll, I'll bet you. I would bet you. My bottom dollar that if you open up, if you drop, you know, not drop to, not open a terminal em- emulator, but you actually, you know, control alt F1, F2, get down to a, to a real terminal, sudo DNF remove, uh, gnome dash desktop and sudo DNF install open box. I bet you it works. 
Yeah, I'm trying to write some uh, almost pathetic software. It just barely meets the 64-bit processor, but it has, like, almost no RAM. <laughs> well... You don't I'm, want to run about. You don't want to, your 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 system. If your system runs out of RAM, it has one of two choices. If your system runs out of memory, you your your kernel either panics or you start swapping out. So if you think you're low on memory, have swap space. Well, I use, I'm trying to run some stuff that has less than a gig of RAM and OpenBox. I know runs really well, and I like it, and I can tweak it around to where I like it. And I really don't like GNOME Shell, and I don't want to dig for all these silly spins. I was like, okay, now how do I get this GNOME stuff out of here? <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm not a huge – I appreciate the call. I'm not a huge GNOME fan, but I would tell you this, uh, James. I don't, I don't know of any way to prevent somebody from removing a desktop, and I don't know what Red Hat's incentive – or the Fedora – really, they're separate. I don't know what the Fedora team's incentive would be – to try to keep a desktop environment on there, that doesn't really stand a whole lot of reason to me. They and like Steve correctly pointed out, they have they themselves published different spins. I looked, I didn't see one of OpenBox. There's plenty of posts on the internet talking about how to get Fedora set up with OpenBox. Um, so I, I would tell you, I wouldn't worry about it. I would, I would, I would either install a bunch or uh, excuse me, Fedora server, and then you'll have to install Xorg the XOR server and stuff like that, and you have to install probably some other stuff like Network Manager, or you start with something like i3, and then, like Steve said, just add the desktop environment you want on there. 855-450, no, it's 855-450-6624, the email, live at com. Our second email writes in about the SMB mounts in Dolphin. So this is from Chris, he says, Hey, Noah and Steve. In episode 277, a listener writes in asking about Samba support in Dolphin. I'm running Endeavor OS, which I think he said he was, and my desktop environment is KDE. I have no issues watching videos on my NAS by just double-clicking, and VLC plays the files just fine. One thing I do differently is after I browse to my video folder on my NAS, I drag the folder over to the places on the left under the remote heading tab, so the system will only mount the network share when I click on it in Dolphin. Everything runs for my FreeNAS with no issue. I also do not get the mounting issues or unmounting issues with the FreeNAS that Steve mentions when you mount an SMB share in FSTAP. I would suggest he gives this a try. Have a great one, and thanks for all the great content. So let me ask you this. Do, do you, when you mount a Samba share in FSTAB. Is that what he's saying is that, is that what he's saying doesn't create the problem? Uh, I'm well, so when you mount something in FSTAB, you are giving it a path to the directory on your system. And so then dolphin would just be treating it like a normal directory anyway. So um, I don't imagine that should have any problems doing it that way. The, the issue that I was talking about was when you try and surf to a Samba share on a machine, and doesn't it's not limited to KDE, but on a machine that doesn't have GFS, um, specifically for Samba or NFS, it doesn't really know what to do with that unless you've mounted it somewhere. So you need to have some sort of um, file system or a thing that is aware that it is interacting with a network file share before it will interact with it correctly. And I believe that the problem 
with Dolphin was that it didn't have that by default. Like you can install the packages, but by default it didn't have that. I believe that was the issue we were trying to address. Right. And so I have run into the same thing. For me, it's a fun, it's 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 VS Codium. So I go to open a text file on a Samba share. I can't do that. I can't because there's no place in the file system to browse to the thing. And if I try to go in Dolphin and open the file there, it copies it to some sort of local cache thing and then opens it there. So then every time I click Control S to save it, it's it pops up with this message. Hey, would you like to overwrite this file that's sitting on this network share because it's trying to copy that file back up? And so the thing that confuses me about uh, Chris's comment here is he said, everything runs fine off my free NAS with no issues with the share in FSTAB. So is he mounting it in FSTAB and is that how he's getting around that issue? It's hard to say. We'd have to ask Mr. DeLuca to call in and chat with us. Hey, Chris, give us a call. So uh, anyway, uh, if 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 I'd be interested to know specifically what those packages are. So I guess, Steve, you don't know off the top of your head, do you? Uh, I do. Actually, I can grab them for you here because you have to install them. When you do, for example, Arch from scratch, you have to go and grab them because um, they're not installed. Very cool. This is the advantage of having somebody who runs Arch. These are the advantages of Arch. This is also, by the way, what keeps me off of Arch is I, I go to do something and I'm like, hold on a second. That isn't there. Of course it isn't because I didn't install it. So you want GVF, GVFS for virtual file system and then dash Samba SMB or dash NFS. And if you're looking to do your phone, there's dash MTP um, and uh, Dash GOA is another one that I install for for as well. And you can also do photo or there's a bunch of the virtual file systems that will help you out like that. What is GVFS GOA? Um, that one, I believe, let me just quickly look that up because I actually don't remember off the top of my head. It's a bunch of those ones where, you know, you inst- you keep the documentation of like, hey, these were the things that you, you used to make it go last time. And so sometimes it, you get into a monkey see, monkey do kind of situation. Absolutely, um, which there's nothing wrong with as long as at one point you knew what all those things did. Yeah, so, okay, that's the online account. So I do that to ah. mount um, uh, Nextcloud. Ah, like a web dev thing? Yep, it just sits in your your direct, like on, on your hotbar, just like any other thing. So that's very cool. So we'll have all of those packages, the Samba, the NFS, the MTP, and the GOA in the show notes of podcast.asknoahshow.com. So if this is you and you're struggling with this, and this is me and I'm struggling with this, uh, you install these packages and see if that works. And I'm going to try it. I'm going to report back and see if Steve fixed my issue. Our third email comes in from Charlie. Charlie writes in and says, good day, everyone. A few shows back, a gentleman was talking about a map solution for camping for his wife. I recommend you check this out. And he links to organic maps for offline hiking, biking, trails, and navigation. And this actually, not only did it come in as a, as a feedback, it, a, one, a couple of our producers had uh, posted this to check out. This is really cool. It's a free Android and iOS offline maps app that you can use for doing, you know, cycling and tourist and traveling and all of the things. Um, I ran into an issue where I had gone uh, overseas and I didn't realize that I didn't have the, like it wouldn't be able to use the map unless I had data service there. And so it kind of screwed me. And ever since then, I've been painfully aware that 
navigation requires data. And that's always been kind of, it's always kind of gone hand in hand. So the nice thing about organic maps is it respects your privacy, saves your battery life, and you don't have any unexpected mobile data charts because it's all running right off of your phone. They don't have any ads. They don't have any tracking. They don't have any data collections. They don't have to phone home for anything. There's no annoying registration. There's no mandatory tutorials. There's no noisy email spam. There's no pitch notifications. There's no crapware. Uh, it's, and then they say there's no pesticides. It's purely organic. Get it? Haha. Organic maps. Steve, you heard of this or played with it at all? I haven't played with it. Um, thanks, Charlie, for sending this in. I might put this on my phone. I normally do uh, one of the maps that allows you to download areas at a time um, because traveling for work, I am keenly aware that navigation doesn't uh, work particularly well if you haven't done it in advance, downloading mm. your maps. So I usually prepare ahead of time, but I might check this out. Do you uh, do you travel outside of the country? At all? I mean, I guess, yeah, I'm going to ask that question because you were in Canada. So I guess that probably frequently means you travel outside of the country. But I suppose as long as you stayed in North America... That's I think that's where it bit me anyway when I left North America. Have you ever left the continent? Well, why wouldn't it bite me moving to coming to the U.S.? Uh, because it's still in North America. Uh, North America still requires you to have data. That's true. So if it okay, so you right? you've you've so you've had it to where hey I don't have data I don't have a thing and now I can't get the map information I'm looking. Pretty much, um, the plans in Canada were particularly terrible, and so I had like. The travel plan gave me like 300 megs a month. So you do a lot with 300 megs. Mm. Go for it. <laughs> Good thing you work in IT and have Wi-Fi when you get to your ultimate destination, huh? Yeah. Organic Maps, we'll have a, we'll have a link for you in the show notes of podcast.snoshow.com. They have it available on App Gallery, FDroid, Google Play, and the Apple I, or the Apple App Store. So I, I highly recommend you check that out. I'm going to download it and see if I can switch over that um, as a map as a map app, that would be very interesting. And there's, as I, as we're talking about this, there are people that are talking in the chat room. You can join us at geeklab.ninja. And they're saying, Hey, we use this and and, it, and it's really great. Now here's a question. I wonder if there is uh, an initiative or if there's any interest in moving this kind of thing over to things like sailfish OS and UbiPorts and, you know, plasma mobile and, and those kinds of apps. I, I say that because I had a very uncomfortable experience one time. I was at a Linux Fest, and we were going to go for ice cream or something like that. We get into the car, and we're driving, and we can't find the place that we're looking for. And I look over the guy that's next to me and said, hey, can you pull this up on Maps? Well, my phone doesn't have that. What kind of phone do you have? And he was using an open source operating system, said it doesn't have Maps. And I thought, how, how do you use that as your daily driver and not have navigation? And... Why has nobody addressed that or why has nobody been working on that? That's crazy. That is, that's like a, a key function of having a smartphone. Um, so the fact that something like this exists, the fact that something like this is crowdsourced and available is really cool. I don't know. I, I get along just fine without navigation. There's, there's just something about, um, you know, using your brain to map out your stuff. And if you don't flex that, you'll lose it. And so most of the time I do, I do what I did back before there were smartphones. I look at the route on a map. I decide, like I figure out ahead of time how I'm going to get wherever I'm going. And then I go. And then I just, once I've gone once I can, and especially coming back, then I'll be able to retrace those steps. So to your point, uh, there is 
a lot of uh, of peer-reviewed studies that correlate early onset dementia and Alzheimer's to people that don't keep their brain actively engaged. And so the people that do crosswords and navigate by uh, thinking and those kinds of things um, can actually off-put uh, early onset dementia and those sorts of things. They also – there was a recommendation I saw a while back – that when you're navigating, you should intentionally try to take different routes, and it keeps your mind sharp and keeps those neural pathways uh, working. So there, there's a there's a lot of truth in in what you're saying. There's a saying in the airline industry, "Child of the magenta," and it's because there's a whole generation of pilots now that have trouble navigating, and they just they look down and there's a magenta line, and they fly the magenta line, and that takes them to their destination. And if that were to ever go away for any reason, they don't know what they're doing. And that should terrify us. So organic maps, have you if so, you would you use this for just like, hey, I'm going to get a route and then I'll commit it to memory or kind of look and plan out my thing and then I'll close the app and go back to doing it or not even for that? No, I absolutely would. I mean, right now, I think I'm using here we go for that sort of stuff. So um, I'm always open to an alternative that actually works decently. The problem that we had is that. Where we were, Apple Maps wasn't fantastic. Like, we tried a bunch of those maps, and it would be like work 70% of the time, mm. and that's just not good enough. Fair enough. Our fourth email comes in from Howard. Howard writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Last year in December, I wrote into the show to ask you both how I would go about changing my career from an English teacher to a position in an IT using Linux. Steve very kindly read through my resume. He gave some great comments and even did an old resume to use in his example for a style guide. I changed my resume per Steve's comments and after 160 applications to multiple companies, I'm delighted to inform you both. I'm going to become a technical support engineer, a position that uses Linux as a host of other technologies. From the very bottom of my heart, thank you so much, Steve, for your help. I can't describe how much it means to me that you've helped me change my life for the better. I used TrueUp.io for the job hunting per Noah's recommendation, and while it was good, I would recommend LinkedIn for those looking for jobs in Japan. TrueUp caters to those who are living in the U.S., in my opinion. I actually had one question for the show as well. Do either of you have experience mounting an encrypted APFS drive on Linux? I've tried APFS Fuse, but after entering my encryption key for the drive, nothing else happens in the terminal. The offer is still open for sending you both some small thank you gifts from Japan but I completely understand if you'd rather not receive them. Thank you again so much for your amazing service to the community. Kind regards, Howard. Hey, Steve, nice job. Yeah. Well, it's team effort. Team well, effort. You got, we, got, we, got hired, we got Howard hired. Say that three times. Yeah, fast. congratulations, Howard. Uh, that, that definitely took some determination. I know how that goes. It's a, lot of, uh, it's a lot of failures. They always say that, you know, the most successful people, they just don't, they, they have so many failures, but they just ignore them. You know, nobody focuses on the failures. It's mm. only the successes. And I'm glad that you kept at it. The best way I've ever heard success described is it's a it's a pile of failures that you stand on top of. And I've always liked that analogy because it's 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 remarkably accurate as far as when I when I think about the things that we do well at AltaSpeed, oftentimes the beginnings of those things are abysmal failures, one after the other, after the other, after the other. And you learn and you iterate from the failure and you you develop this mindset of I am going to design a system and I'm going to tweak switches in the system until I get it to do what I want in 
Howard's case, it sounds like he did 168 different tweaks, 160 uh, different tweaks to get his job changed over, but he finally did it. Yeah, I mean, that's all I can say is I've I've been there. I don't think that I've sent out 160 at one time. Maybe. I don't know. I was unemployed for a while, so I completely understand how that goes. It can be a complete full-time job just sending out resumes and doing little tweaks to try and get somebody's attention. So I'm I'm happy for you. As to your APFS question, I have literally never owned a Mac. Um, so the closest thing I, I've come to that is my wife has an iPhone which I don't even touch. So <laughs> I'm no help. I, uh, I, I, our church is kind of standardized on, on Macs. And so I administrate a bunch of Macs, but I've never tried to mount an encrypted APFS drive in Linux. So I, I guess I can't be a, a whole lot of help there either, but I have good news for you, Howard. Now that we've, now that we've read your question, somebody in the community is frantically typing an email as we speak. Hey, no one, Steve, this is so-and-so. And I know exactly how to fix Howard's problem. And so as soon as that email arrives at our inbox from our carrier pigeons, we will get it in your direction. So if you know how to help Howard, live at AskNoahShow.com, we'd love to hear. Our fifth email comes in from Brian. Brian writes in, hey, Noah and Steve, in episode 281, you discussed wanting a USB-C charging style outlet in your bathroom. As Steve mentioned, if GFCI receptacle is upstream and the line side of the circuit is protected beyond the GFCI receptacle... Optimally, it's the first receptacle in the circuit. Likely, the receptacle in your bathroom is not the only receptacle in the circuit, but it may be the first circuit off of the panel. You could go through the process of rigging out the circuit with the tone generator to determine the receptacle's relative location in the circuit. Another possible solution is a GFCI breaker in the panel itself. If this is allowable by the code in your area, this would protect all receptacles on the circuit and you wouldn't need to know where the bathroom receptacle falls in the circuit layout. I was an electrician in a prior life and a licensed home builder. Thanks for all the great content, Brian. So if I'm understanding all of this correctly, you guys are suggesting just use a plain old regular type C outlet um, that isn't GFCI, isn't special, but just put it downstream of the GFCI outlet. Is, is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, the theory is that the, the GFI outlet closest to the breaker should protect everything behind it. Um, so that, at least here, that's okay by code. I still put GFI plugs all the way around for water just because um, I wasn't going to switch out the, the breaker itself. Um, but the breaker is a good idea too. I didn't think of that. That That would actually be a really good idea from the standpoint of not having to figure out which plug was the first one on your on your circuit. Well, what if I need uh, Type C though, and I can't find a GFCI Type C outlet? Then well, I can't put GFCI everywhere. Well, that yeah, that's why I said the GFCI breaker covers the entire circuit, mm, right? So you swap out the the breaker in your panel, and it covers the circuit right from your right from your mains all the way through. What would you say to What would you say to somebody? As I was having this discussion, this came up, you know, after we talked about it in the show. Somebody had heard it, and they, we were having a conversation about it. Um, and they said this. I'm interested in how you'd, how you would respond. The whole um, arc fault circuit breaker is just came to proliferation. Just it, it came into existence because the companies that make them wanted to go from selling breakers at four or five dollars a pop to, you know, thirty, forty dollars a pop and petition the national electrical code to start to require them um, so they could make more money off of breakers. How would you respond to that? 
uh, you've never accidentally put a nail through a wire then. Because that's like, what... Yeah, that, that's primarily... Well, not primarily, but that's one of the main use cases is is where you actually have put... The, like, you've basically shorted the, the hot wire somehow, either through putting a nail through it or... Uh, another use case is like if you've got a junction box or, or any of those metal boxes and somebody didn't use the proper protection when putting it in and then the casing wears away and you actually can get uh, a thing where the hot wire will actually energize the junction box because either the junction box isn't grounded or whatever because the little the um, the insulation around the hot wire wears away over time. Um, if it's rubbing against the side. And so, you know, that will cause an arc fault. Basically, the people that say that there, there's something to that if you said, well, you know, they're just looking to increase the price. I'm sure they were. But at the same time, um, for, for the standards, especially the NEC, I have a lot more faith that they, they've done a lot of work to make sure that what they're putting out is actually for the best safety Right. And so I don't know, to me, understanding a little bit about how arc faults work and how they can actually um, protect like an arc fault would trigger way faster than um, the over the overage of amperage. So like mm. if you have a short in your circuit somewhere and you, you trip your breaker, that happens relatively quick. But the arc fault breaker trips way faster because what happens when a breaker trips is a certain amount of amperage may may be exceeded or a certain amount of heat happens. And there's a delay between that because usually what happens, and again, I'm not an electrician. I just pretend that I'm one. In you my play dreams. one on the radio. Yeah. But they, they design a circuit to be 80% of whatever the capacity is on the circuit breaker. So if it's 15, you shouldn't have more than 12 amps on that, on that circuit. And the reason for that is so that it gives it that little, if you have a fault, you know, it can, it, it can eat up that extra 20% and then the breaker will trip. Whereas if you loaded that down completely, the breaker is still going to trip after about 20% because that's how it works. But instead of 15 amps, then you're talking about 18 amps and you've surpassed it. Whereas the arc fault is almost instantaneous when, when you put a nail through the arc fault, it trips immediately. It's it's just much quicker because of the way that it was designed. From the all of like 30 seconds of research that I had done on this the last time, my understanding is that if you, you know, the whole like I fall into the bathtub or the hairdryer falls into the bathtub, there are certain circumstances in which that won't cause enough current to be drawn over the wire to cause the circuit breaker to trip, but it would trip an arc fault. Correct. So for all those reasons, you might consider having one. Again, live at AskNoahShow.com. The phone number 855-450-NOAH, 855-450-6624. Our sixth email comes in from Jim. Jim writes in and says, Dear Noah and Steve, thanks for all the great information presented on your show. I really appreciate the varieties of opinions expressed. I'm a longtime Linux enthusiast and hobbyist since the days of Debian Etch and Fedora 7. I work in a small medical practice. And our IT company has a strong preference for Windows, but I continue to gently push them to consider Linux and open source enterprise options. Our EMR, or electronic medical records, accounting software, has email calendaring. It's all cloud-based. We do have an on-site server, 
that's Windows-based, and it has several functions. First, authentication, print server, and a file server. Since we are a medical practice, we still rely on faxes, so there's also an on-site separate fax server. Our IT company has recently proposed upgrading our in-office hardware firewall. They're suggesting a Cisco FirePower 1010 ASA appliance with a five-year SmartNet plus five-year AnyConnect license for our office staff to use the hardware. My question is this, is this the best tool for the job? Since our office EMR accounting software and email all sit outside of the firewall and they're frequently accessed outside of the office, what is it that our firewall is really protecting? We absolutely want to take the appropriate steps to keep our data safe and secure. We also don't ever want to be the subject of ransomware. I strongly believe that security is a process, not a single product. So the firewall should just be a part of our overall security strategy. I'm hoping to get your opinion on whether this firewall product makes sense or not, or if there's other products that you might recommend. If there is a choice to support a product made by a company that shares the values of open source privacy and security, I would want to strongly consider that option, even if it costs more. Thanks for all you do, Jim. So what do you think, Steve? You undoubtedly have some experience with uh, with Cisco ASAs. Do you like them? Are they good? Is it the right tool for the right job? I mean, they do their job. I don't have anything bad to say about them. Um, I guess the disclaimer is when I went through school, Cisco was what was being taught. So there yeah. is some built-in bias there. But, I mean, it's changed tons since when I went through school. But Man. they do their job. That That's all there is to say about it. Yeah, Nobody ever got fired for buying Cisco. And I, I will tell you, I, I think I've said this on the show before, but I'll repeat it. I... I when we were building the radio station, we did everything with audio over IP, and we're just getting, uh, we're just wrapping up uh, the the completion of our second studio. It's kind of exciting. Um, and when we spec'd all of this stuff out, we were looking at switches, and I'm a big fan of HP switches. And so I thought I want to do all of my audio. I want to do HP switches everywhere. And Axia, the company who makes all of our uh, our broadcast equipment said, no, you shouldn't do that. You definitely want to stick with Cisco switches. And I said, why? I, we're an HP shop. We use HP. They work really great. have a lot of experience with them. They're fast. Says, Listen, we do testing on switches, and we check to see what the white paper publication is of the performance of the switches, and then we send them off and actually have them tested. We've tested HP. We've tested uh, you know, TP-Link. We've tested all these switches, and the only switch manufacturer that comes back time and time again that not only meets their white paper specifications, but in in a lot of cases exceeds their own specifications as Cisco. So if you want to do this, you really need to do it with Cisco gear. Like Steve, when I did my network certification, it was a Cisco certification because if you worked on any network with any size to it, it was all Cisco stuff. And a lot of it still is. So is a Cisco Firepower 1010, uh, uh, you know, with a, with a five-year uh, contract, is that a is that the right tool for a medical office? Sure. Yeah, that'll get the job done. Is there a doubt? What is the firewall doing? You say that it's, you know, all this stuff is outside. So what is it really protecting? It's protecting the inside of your network. You First of all, you have the file server that sits on the inside. Second of all, you have client devices, right? All of your devices, your computers, anything that has an IP address is subject to compromise. And so you want to reject any traffic uh, coming from outside. Now, today, a lot of that would be done just with NAT itself, because if you don't explicitly create a, a way in through NAT, 
there's there's a certain amount of security through obscurity there that will go away with IPv6. Um, so the, the the you definitely want a firewall, and if you want access to that file server or the print server or your authentication from outside the office, then you definitely want the VPN thing. Now, to your last part, is it the best tool for the job, and is there a company that shares uh, uh, similar values? I would I would say. The answer to that question is yes, there is a better tool for the job, and yes, there are companies that support uh, your values. So I just got done writing a proposal and going through taking a company through what it would take to migrate off of a proprietary subscription-based firewall over to a open-source one like a NetGate. If you look at the product specifications for uh, the NetGate routing appliances and you compare those to a lot of these other devices, what you'll find is oftentimes the NetGate performs better. Now, that probably is not going to be true uh, with Cisco because, as I previously mentioned, Cisco tends to just take the cake when it comes to performance. But you can likely get the same job done and it will likely cost you less money. Here's the kicker to me. That five-year AnyConnect license means that every time you want to have people connecting through VPN, you're going to pay a subscription fee. You're paying Cisco a subscription fee for the privilege of asking accessing your own network. Now, I am all on board with paying some sort of recurring fee for the purpose of continued development, but to pay for specific features, I'm not sure I really get behind that. If you went with something like a NetGate 7100, you are likely to uh, be able to power your entire medical office. You're also likely to be able to set up OpenVPN and have anybody connect remotely that wants to connect remotely. You can pair that with Sericata if you wanted intrusion detection or intrusion prevention. And uh, that will likely get you the same end result as your Cisco system. But you're, by purchasing that device you are supporting a company who will continue to maintain PFSense. Uh, and so for that reason, I would highly suggest you check that out. Our seventh email comes in from Ryan. Ryan writes in and says, In the past, when the topic of home automation has come up, I found it very interesting, but not really all that compelling. The idea of having your basic light and light switch has always just been fine with me. Recently, however, I've begun to think about home automation a little differently. Not so much a way to automate basic tasks, but as a way to gather data. Steve, this guy's speaking your alley. My primary example is HVAC. We just had a failure at one of our zones, and it was the middle of the day. The temperatures were high, and we guess over the AC was not cooling. This got me thinking. I have multiple thermostats. I have monitoring. I have temperature. Turning on and off the control temperature, I want that data. I would love to have graphs of the temperature when the unit turns on, how long it takes to raise or lower to the desired temperature, perhaps some alerts when the system is working harder than it should have to. Maybe I would even know a potential failure before it actually happens. Being able to control the temperature from my smartphone, that's neat. But a better understanding of how the system is working or not working, that would be gold. My question, do you guys have any specific knowledge or recommendations regarding smart thermostats, including... I'm at ground zero with home automation currently. And more generally, any thoughts about the different purposes and abilities of home automation software beyond just automating simple tasks? Well, there's an obvious question. Where do I start? What software do I want on my VM? Thanks, Ryan. All right, Steve, home automation <laughs> expert. Where does Ryan start? Well, I don't know about an expert. Um, <clears throat> so I looked into thermostats. I switched mine out. Um, 
I wouldn't call it a smart thermostat necessarily in the traditional sense. So I went with the Venstar T7900 because it has a local API, which means that I never connected it up to the silly service that that they have. It can connect to your Wi-Fi and all the rest of that. And Home Assistant can talk to it, um, which is the primary interface that I use. So it can do things like set the set the um, humidity and temperature and all the rest of that. It can, because the thermostat also checks the air filters, it'll, it gives you a sensor of like the air, air filters. Okay. Um, like I can see, for example, I'm looking at it right now today, the heat stage one ran for 98 minutes and the heat stage two ran for 21 minutes. And that, you know, the it's reading at 70, 70 degrees Fahrenheit and so on. So, I do quite a bit with this data just as a general rule. So um, I have, I kind of have a staged approach. The heat, the, the thermostat actually goes off even in the wintertime, goes completely off from 10 p.m. until about uh, 3 a.m. Then at 3 a.m. it turns on and, and kicks on to like 62. And then it gradually heats up the house more and more right until about the time that I get up at 530. Um, and then again, when my wife gets up because she's cold. So um, that's the way that we kind of control things in our house. And there's all kinds of things that you can do to, to automate that because it has a local API. So even if you weren't using Home Assistant or some of that neat stuff that you can do there, because you have access to the local API, um, you can do all of that with just curl and a bash script if you wanted to. Um, the other thing that I have done, um, and you, you only do this if A, you are comfortable with power or B, you're going to hire an electrician is you can actually get what are called CT clamps. So current currency transformer clips. And what they do is they go around the hot wire of one of your outlets, or in my case, I've got 16 of them sitting in my box and they can measure the power draw on an entire circuit. If you're putting them in your mains and this helps because I'm able to track how much power my thermostat is like, let me rephrase that, how much power the the heating unit in my house uses. And I can also use that as a, you know, how, how good is the API? When it says that it's been running for this long, I have the power draw coming from my breaker. I know how much amperage it was pulling at what time. And I can kind of see when it's, when it's struggling or when it's kicking on and all that sort of stuff. So even if you've got a breakdown where the thermostat thinks that it's that it's set to a certain amount. Um, we've had it before where the thermostat looked like it was set properly, but someone had literally just hit the don't heat button. And so it never turned on, even though the temperature you'd walk by and it says I'm set to whatever. Um, it was cold in the house and it was an easy diagnosis. Well, looked at the power drawn the thermostat never went on like the, the heater never went on. So there's lots of things that you can do um, kind of simply for this. So I would say, yeah, the Venn, the Venstar stuff is pretty good. There's a bunch of stuff out there. Stay away from the Nest if you care about keeping your stuff off the internet. Um, if you don't care about that, I hear they're pretty good. They've got some good integration. Um, I'm not going to help you with it, but I'm sure somebody out there would be lo love to help you out there. So I, I, I went a slightly different route. I use the Honeywell Redlink. And the reason that I like the Honeywell Red Link is, is a couple of things. So first is it natively pairs to it to a controller that sits downstairs. So I have 
a heat pump system. So it pumps water around a boiler system, and that's how the house is heated. And it's an old, it's an older house, and so when they, they they had just traditional analog thermostats with thermostat wire on. Well, the nice thing about the Redlink system was. I put the controller and replaced what was interface, the equipment interface module that talks to the heating system. And then the Redlink thermostats, they just run off of 12 volts running through the regular thermostat wire. So you don't actually have to run wire to where you want the thermostats. You just have to get 12 volts there. Now, I already had the wire ran, so I just used reused the wire that was there for the analog stats. But you wouldn't have to do that. Now, the nice thing about that is the Redlink system then pairs to a network controller. So... I get access from Home Assistant uh, to the Redlink system, but even if Home Assistant went down, the Redlink system would still wirelessly communicate with its own protocol to all of the thermostats in the house and downstairs. So what that gets me is I have a thermostat in the bedroom. I can go into that thermostat and say, hey, I'm now the master. So I've got five zones in my house. I want all of the zones to follow what I'm doing here in the in the master bedroom and well, it will take over all of them. And that's not going through Home Assistant to do that. It's doing it on the thermostat system themselves. The other thing I like about it is it doesn't require a registration with an account to use uh, the local network features. Only if you want Honeywell to be able to remotely access the thing, then obviously you, you go that, that way. Um, so, And if you didn't pick this up, where to start? Home Assistant. I would suggest Home Assistant is what you put on your VM or set it up with a – what would you say, Steve? A Raspberry Pi to get started with Home Assistant or spin it up on a VM? Oh, you can go with a Raspberry Pi if you're not doing anything complicated. Well, depends what you have. I'd say don't go out and buy something. So if you have to buy a, a Raspberry Pi, uh, don't. I wouldn't do anything less than a Raspberry Pi 3 for sure. Um, I would strongly recommend a Raspberry Pi 4, but – you know, it doesn't. Home Assistant doesn't take any grunt if you're if you're not really doing anything complicated, like causing a lot of logging, like or trying to make it the hub of your house. If you're just if you're just automating a few things, it'll be fine to start out with pretty much anything you throw at it. Again, eight fifty five four fifty Noah. It's eight five five four five zero six six two four. The email live at asknoahshow dot com. Uh, JT is standing by with the latest Linux news headlines. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The Linux Foundation and Google Cloud have launched Nefio to automate 5G edge sites. Microsoft shifts its Sonic development to the Linux Foundation. Sonic, which stands for Software for Open Source Networking in the Cloud, could attract stronger enterprise interest for the open source network operating system. Razer's first line of Linux laptop is here, but it's not for gamers. A company called Lambda is now putting Ubuntu on a souped-up version of last year's Razer Blade 15 with Razer's full blessing, the aim of which is to sell it for machine learning and artificial intelligence researchers. Google has shared its plan to make Steam work on Chrome OS with Linux. Intel Raptor Lake P graphics driver support has been added to the Linux 5.19 kernel. The open-source project Coreboot hit a major milestone this week when Linux developers successfully installed Coreboot on an MSI Z690 Alder Lake motherboard. DistroBox recently released version 1.2.14. DistroBox allows you to run multiple Linux distributions inside the terminal on your Linux system using Podman or Docker. These containers are integrated with Host to enable users to share their home directory, external storage, USB devices, GUI apps, audio, etc. LXQT 1.1 has been released with theme updates, panel improvements, and more. 
the lightweight desktop environment gets further refinements to improve the look and give users more control. Turnkey Linux 17 Stable has been released, along with preliminary Raspberry Pi 4 builds. Manjaro Linux has released 21.2.6, the latest point release in their 21.2 release. This release comes with updated desktop environments that include KDE Plasma 5.23.5, XFCE 5.16, and GNOME 41.3. Krita 5.0.5 has been released with a bunch of bug fixes. The devs hope that this will be the last point release before Krita 5.1 comes out. And lastly, Pipewire 0.3.50 has been released. All right. Thank you, JT. We'll have another update from JT next week. He gives you the week in review and you catch it here on the Ask Noah show. So, Steve, Elon Musk bought Twitter. It happened. Yep. Um, I'm, I'm kind of surprised, especially after the up and down of like the, they're going to make a poison pill and, and there, there seemed to be a lot of, uh, well, Let's not beat around the bush. I, I think there was a lot of hissy fits that were being thrown all over the place. Yeah, and think? I didn't, I didn't really understand it. I just, I just didn't understand it. If you're, if you think that the social media needs to be protected, Twitter is the smallest of all the mo- social media platforms. So getting, getting your toehold in a small social media platform didn't seem like it was going to start World War Three, but that, that was the, the definite indi- indication. I actually woke up and I was like, I sent my one of my friends who has a differing political opinion a, a message, and I was like, so um, this is what it looks like when the world's over? I had it on good authority that I shouldn't have woken up this morning. <laughs> so I have to ask, Steve, do you, do you see this and you, were you, was your thought, hey, this is great or this is terrible? No, I, I think it was a good thing as a general rule. Um, I wholeheartedly support free speech, and I also like the idea of tying free speech to your name. I don't mm. think that free speech means that you have the right to, you know, just pop off and say any ridiculous thing under the guise of anonymity. Like this is the only, the only time in history where you've ever really been able to be uh, anonymous while standing up in the in the town square. You know, it's um, I don't. I think that people react differently when they realize that there's going to actually be some consequence for the things they say. And having said that, I'm sure I'm going to get an avalanche of hate mail sent my way. No, I I don't know about that. I mean, so I I would tell you that I have a differing opinion um, than you. I I respectfully disagree from the standpoint that I think in some ways it allows... The ability to choose a screen name and then post what you want to post, I think, lends itself to a more honest society. I recognize that that's not always a good thing because sometimes honesty is just another word for jerk, right? Yeah, I mean, I just – I don't buy that argument. I I don't think – I think that the – the world is a better place when people thoughtfully consider what they're going to say as opposed to just, you know, saying being 100% honest. And that probably strikes you as slightly ironic coming from someone like me. But there is something to the fact of social norms kind of held us in check for a long, long time. And I think that in terms of how society got along and the cohesion and the let's say the uprightness of society 
has declined as we have have had less respect for each other and and respect is bred and taught by making sure that people interact in a reasonable way so if i were to sum that up we kind of forgot that there's people at the other end of that computer yeah i mean that that pretty much does it i agree with that i agree with that i I like the fact that we are going to move towards a more open platform. And, you know, there's a lot of things that have been circulated around or kind of discussed, including stuff directly from Twitter. Things like um, their own uh, Project Blue Sky, which was a plan for interoperability federated standardized platform uh, for social media. And th- this is coming from within inside Twitter, right? So I think the previous direction of Twitter was this lock it down, control what people can say, that sort of thing. I like the fact, I I guess we'll find the space to agree that Elon really wants to move the needle forward uh, with opening this back up. That, I think, is good for society in general. If we tie to a name, whatever. I I mean, I'm the position that I'm in, I guess that that boat sailed a long time for me. If, If I wanted to, you know, stay private or whatever, people... People know who I am at this point. So uh, that, that, that boat has kind of sailed, but this is going to be good. I think this is going to be good. I'm excited. Congratulations, Elon, for buying Twitter. $42 million, What a deal. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. But don't worry. The show continues 24-7-365 over at podcast.asknoahshow.com. There you'll find all of the articles and references we used to do the show, plus a bunch of stuff that we didn't have time to get to. So go check it out. We record the show every Tuesday at 6 p.m. You can listen to us live at asknoahshow.com. We'll see you next. We'll see here back next Tuesday. Easy for me to say at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. 